This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, does Canada need to take new approach to how sex worker laws function in our country? Dr. Stacey Hanna, professor with the Criminal Justice Department at Wilfrid Laurier University, tells us about the people who enter the industry and why many are seeking to decriminalize it and why current laws are not helping the profession stay safe. In fact, current laws could be making it more unsafe for sex workers. From Ukraine, we've got Mikhailo Zarnikov. Russian airstrikes are continuing in the form of rockets and shells. Mikhailo is a democracy advocate, former judge, and a lawyer, and he tells us about the Russian airstrikes, bombing a major bridge in Crimea, and generational issues in Ukraine. Plus, are you okay with purses? What about some crowd surfing? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with purses? Or in a uh, satchel. Plural. It's peace. Is it? Wait. It is. Yeah, actually? No. No. <laughs> I was Persi. very confused. Persai. 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 Still not a thing? No. No. Not even close. No. Um, no. Oh. I have a dog that just came down to say hello oh, to me. Oh, that was you. A random dog. Yeah. That was me. Yeah, I sorry. Was like, I'm, I'm, usually it's Shane. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, wish no, I had I a studio one. dog. I don't have a studio dog. I need yeah, one. Yeah. In Shane's case, it's a great Dane that jumps on him. This is a little Flips chihuahua. My chair over. Oh, and she's running away. She's lost interest. Anyway. Purses. Yeah. Purses are cool. You can fit a chihuahua in a purse. Oh, yeah. Full circle. fit a great Dane in a purse. <laughs> it's a big purse. Good luck. It's very big. It smells yeah. bad. Um. Okay, like man purses, I guess. Are we talking about like a man's perspective? Because I think ladies' purses, they're like a black hole of bacteria and, and <laughs> right? Like they're yeah. like the dirtiest places on the planet. Yeah. Bags in general. I, yeah, my brother, uh, my bro, what was it? My brother was trying to find his Amazon Alexa and he found it in his old gym bag. And I said, Evan, why is it stained white? And he's like, uh, protein powder that I can't clean off of it. Because it sat in the bag with protein mm. powder for like a year. So I feel like just bags in general are nasty, but great for getting stuff around. So there's that. Well, like, I mean, with that answer, protein powder is actually a better answer than I thought where that was going. Why yeah, is it right. white coming out of the bag? I was assuming it was some sort of bacteria. Yeah. So protein yeah, powder is actually not that bad. Just just lick yeah, it, it off. it could be worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could be a lot worse, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I mean, they're handy. You put all your stuff in there. You lose all your stuff in there, all that stuff. Uh, they say, I never met them, but I hear they say a lot of things. They say you can learn a lot about a person from the contents of their handbag. This proved to be true when a decades old missing purse was discovered under the floorboards of a Texas school, which makes you suspicious, right? You're like, wait a second. Is there like a head in there or something? The purse, a visibly worn, like the movie Seven, the purse, a visibly worn and yellowed studded clutch bag, contains several items, including a diary, numerous photos, a nail file, and a calendar filled with messages up to April 1959. The owner of the purse was believed to be a woman named Beverly Williams. Among the several photos was one of Williams herself as a baby. Written on the photo was Williams, age 9.5 months. 
and the year 1946. The school district had trouble finding the owner, but through the magic of community and connection, they found her family. For the rest of her life, this is absolutely by far the smallest purse she's ever carried. Andrea Beverly Williams was a student at Clear Creek High School until 1962. That's when she moved away to California. She would later marry and have nine children. But her wallet lost in 1959 would leave a mark on the CCISD community more than 60 years later. I really wish she were here to see this. She would... She would crack up at this. Even those close to Beverly in the 60s transported back in time. Beverly had real significance to me. I I came from a really crazy family. Beverly and I, we became friends. And we, from time to time, we spent, that, we spent time together. She was a lifesaver. The love, the warmth, the kindness just exuded from her. As a kid, you think your mom is Wonder Woman, right? But to hear other people go, you know, she was really cool, or, you know, she was a great person, is, it's nice. It's really nice. Beverly passed away in 2015, but the family says this is a gift. That's a nice little treat. Hey, learn a little bit. Learn a little bit about Bev. Uh, that from Clear Creek ISD. And that's my dog. Um, I, I just think that's neat. It's, just, it's weird how it ends up in the floorboards, though. Like, right? I yeah. Mean, right? Who puts it there and then puts boards over top and goes, ha ha, Beverly, take that. Right? Like, no. It's, maybe. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. It's just, it was a really small purse. So it may have slipped in. I mean, it was. It was 1959 like who knows it's too bad we won't be able to know the full story but it's cool to see it the pictures are pretty awesome it's actually up on globalnews.ca by the way you can see all the pictures of what was in that purse it's pretty cool maybe i don't uh i would love to have it like a a, my grandma's purse my something like that my grandfather's briefcase or something just like show up from so long ago just to see some new insights on them i think it'd be cool well, I was going to say that yeah, right. maybe in 65 years, in, embedded in the floorboards of the TD Tower in Vancouver, they'll find Brendan Kelly's iPhone 8, uh, and it'll just Did be you like, lose it yeah, it'll just be, well, maybe, I don't know, this is like a similar story that could happen in the future, and it, they'll just be like, it looked like he was in a lot of trouble with the CRA, because they kept texting him, not realizing <laughs> they're all scam messages. All scam messages. I love it. <laughs> I got a couple of them today, too, and they're getting sneaky. They're like, hey, Steve, how you doing? Are you okay with... Yeah, don't reply to those, by the way. That's the that's the point. No. Are you okay with TPing? Unless that's a typo. Mm. No, no, t- like TPing someone's house. Huh. Oh, Very good. Yeah. I never did it. I've never done it. Yeah, looks fun. Doesn't seem like something you younger millennials would do. You'd be like, you'd have to use like that that uh, real enviro friendly TP, right? For sure. Yeah, which sucks. It just sucks. Look, I'm I'm all for saving the planet, but if it's not two ply, it's not okay. Uh, So yeah, no. uh, TPing seems like of all the, I would rather have toilet paper thrown at my house than eggs for sure, Um, but. You know, it's a prank. I just think most pranks are kind of stupid, but this one, yeah, it's, it could be worse. It could be eggs. Oh, I'd rather. That is easier to hose off eggs than it is yeah. to hose off like TP. TP gets like stuck on everything. Yeah. 
and it breaks you know, apart. Like I just, and, uh, yeah. yeah, there's no. But but if you wake, if you don't know that you've been egged, and you wake up in the morning, it's been like caked on your house, and yeah. then you got to power wash it. <sighs> I don't. I, it's, I would actually be curious if anybody has had this happen to them. If maybe they could compare, well, maybe we could get a base, some data. I think back it, up our claims. Geography has a lot to play with it because here I would rather be egged because chances are it's going to rain anyway. So I'll just right. yeah, I'll just it, the egg will wash off. Like if the water gets on the toilet paper, they clumple up and become little bits, and I'm sure they're like really hard to get out of your 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 hedges and stuff out front. So yeah, I think I would much rather be egged than TP'd. And also, I've never I've never TP'd either. So. I don't know, Shane. Have you ever TP'd? That seems like no. Was someone's house? No, I was too boring for that. I, although it's a funny statement. Thanks if you're just joining us. This is are you okay with? And I've never TP'd is not in our normal conversation. That just comes out of nowhere. I feel like that's a. I think somebody just walked in on that and turned on the radio and they're like, "Yeah, this is weird." Toilet papering. Students from Wisconsin school were about to decorate someone's home with toilet paper when the school's athletic director intervened with a flamethrower. Oh no. Athletic director Jim Langkamp, Langkamp, along with two other men, were charged criminally after they attempted an illegal citizen's arrest and threatened the teenage boys with a flamethrower when they were TPing on Wednesday night. Don't come to my effing house. And then he, like, like a, f- a fire shot up. John, Teflon, Trayvon, Orlando, and a fifth friend are all on Baraboo High's football team. Yeah. Wednesday night, John was driving as the five planned to TP a local friend's house. We've been told that TPing is like sort of okay for the most part, mm-hmm. that we just can't like throw eggs or like rocks. It went downhill quickly. Several men who live on the street were there waiting. That's according to court records for one adult, John Kohler, who's now charged with disorderly conduct. We didn't even like get to the house, to be honest. Like we just turned around the corner on the street. And the dude was there with like a flamethrower, and then we all kind of like panicked. I hear Orlando. He was like, he was like, he has an effing flamethrower. Run! When I opened the door, they were shouting at me to get on the ground, and I saw I was on my knees or whatever. Orlando and Trayvon ran. I took off first. John and Teflon were forced to the ground with their hands up. Their white friend who stayed was not. What? What was the last line? They they didn't go after the, the white friend. With the the white door. friend was not. Okay, yeah. uh, so that just got way more complicated than um, than yeah. we thought it was. Um, that's WRAL News. The citizen's arrests were not legal in Wisconsin unless the citizen directly witnesses a felony. A court granted temporary restraining order against a flamethrower on behalf of the boys, with more families requesting restraining orders against them and the other men on Friday. Okay, so um, let's just call it out for what it is. It's an accusation of racism. I mean, that's mind-blowing if that's the case, that um, people of a certain skin color were chased down and the other guy was not. Let's just acknowledge that and say that's not okay. Yep. And uh, probably acknowledge the fact that flamethrowers and toilet paper, like if they're threatening them with, if you're toilet papering and you're threatening them to like, stop toilet papering. I'm not quite sure a flamethrower is the best bet there. I think that problem gets worse real quick. Seems <laughs> excessive use of force for for a TP ing situation. Mm. Yeah, I'm not... I just, I, I I just I get to this thing where it's like, how dangerous does it get when you light it on fire? You're probably just going to burn down your own house. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm saying. So, or, like, and if they're throwing eggs, you're going to cook the yeah, eggs. And there's eggs. just too many eggs. 
Fried eggs oh, yeah. is much better than fl- flaming toilet paper. Are you okay with? I feel like it's just best that we move on. Surfing. I love surfing. I just don't like this 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 slimy things in the ocean. I've never been, never been. I don't know if I'd have the balance to do it. I like paddle boarding a lot, and that's like just a bigger surfboard that you use on chill water. So maybe, but I think surfing's really cool to watch. Yeah, it seems cool to watch. I've never actually surfed. Never been surfing, and like, there's really? not much surfing around here. I have to go to Vancouver Island to get some some good surf in. Uh, never done it though. Um, There's some good uh, river surfing in Calgary. Hmm. You ever seen that? It's the river people. Yeah. They uh, they go and they, cool. they they surf and they find themselves usually a, a, a naturally occurring wave of some fashion, and they um, they surf it. They like the wave is just recurring, and they go and they ride that wave. They don't go anywhere, so it's not you know like super coverage like you'd see with you know some places like you would in Hawaii or whatever. But yeah, they just ride the wave right there. You just don't go anywhere. It's really kind of cool. Kind of neat stuff. Okay. Are you okay with crowd surfing? Ooh. No. No, that's the one kind of surfing I'm not okay with. No. It's really? just you're going to yeah. get kicked in the head. So if you go up on top, you're just going to end up kicking a bunch of people, and nobody really wants to lift you up. And uh, I, I don't know. It's just it really bothers me at shows. It's, it, uh, I hate it. It depends. It depends on the show. I've seen it done at like – mundane shows like peter gabriel used to crowd surf <laughs> and that no. yeah, yeah it used to be <laughs> yeah it used to be say like in <laughs> so your lame. eyes and then he would just like lie down on the audience and they would carry him around sort of to the oh, romantic so, peter gabriel music so, so that's really? not that violent like you're not getting thrown around but then i've also been to like social distortion concerts where i was just terrified the person was going to lose all their teeth Okay, uh, I had no idea that this this is Peter Gabriel was the the king of the crowd surf. A superintendent in the United States was filmed showing some school pride this past weekend. The superintendent he went crowd surfing at a high school football game. His name Jason Thompson was also promptly arrested, but he did a little bit more than just crowd surf. Baldwinsville School District Superintendent under. Breaking news tonight, just in the Baldwinsville School District Superintendent under arrest and charged with DWI. Police say 48-year-old Jason Thompson was seen crowd surfing at the football game at Baker High School earlier this evening. With students reporting to district staff, they suspect he had been drinking. Short time later, police spotted Thompson driving without a front plate and making a turn without a signal. They pulled him over and arrested him after a field sobriety test. Thompson has been released from custody. He's due back in the village of Baldwinsville Court later this month. Yo, Teach, how was the hangover, man? That was CBC9. Uh, Thompson hasn't commented on the incident. Uh, he was eating a greasy cheeseburger at the time. Fun fact, Iggy Pop may have invented crowd surfing in a 1970s Cincinnati Summer Pop Festival. In summer 2004, when the Beastie Boys performed at the Manchester Arena in Manchester, England, a ad rock party, ad rock stopped partway. Yeah, it's the DJ. Okay, there you go. That's one of the DJs. There you go. 
Yeah. Um, Ad Rock punctuation. Ad Rock stopped partway through a song to warn the crowds to stop surfing as somebody had been injured. Some artists don't do that. They don't stop it. Following the discouragement with That Bleep is So Old, telling them that save that bleep for the MTV Music Awards. Bleep, 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 Eh. Peter Gabriel. Yeah, he did it best. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> he did it best. <laughs> this is the Shift Podcast. Here on The Shift, we've taken on many different heavy conversations, and it seemed to come to the forefront of our minds that it was time to take on this one. Decriminalizing sex work hearings started, you know, earlier in the week. And a lot of people kind of look at that and go, oh, really? Oh, hookers. And that's kind of this thing that we put on, this this thing, this look we put on it. And if I've learned anything in our conversation about opioids is that we can't apply stigma like that and put people and situations into a box. Let me translate that briefly. With opioids, most people who use opioids and get themselves in trouble are just Joe neighbor. We don't even know that that's what they're up to. So there is no stigma to your neighbor. That's your neighbor. But what happens if human trafficking, sex trafficking, sex work, prostitution, all of those things was exactly that same scenario? What if you didn't know your neighbor was in a position that they probably didn't want to be in? And then you're just chatting with them. And then you throw out these generalizations and stigma and now they're being judged and they certainly can't come talk to you if they get themselves in trouble. So what if we could take that lens in this conversation? And joining me now is Stacey Hannum with Wilfrid Laurier, professor, criminology, study of uh, sex work, and all of these things. Stacey, thank you very much for, for being here with us to, to dig into this, because I think we start by, we don't really know why people end up here. We know how criminals take advantage of it, and we should probably change our lens on all of this, shouldn't we? Yeah, thanks for having me, Shane. I appreciate the the chance to speak to what's going on right now with the hearings. And um, you're absolutely right that people might be surprised to know uh, just who is involved in in doing sex work and and how they got there and and the reasons why this becomes, in some cases, uh, an appealing option for usually women, uh, but but other gendered folks as well. and how they view their work and why they're fighting so actively to have it decriminalized. So this is actually the second time that these laws have been, have been appealed. Really? Hey, Uh, like, is there, is there really, I guess we should break it down. I mean, there are many people in sex work that don't want to be there. There are many people in sex work that are desperate and trying to overcome something and making money and they're doing whatever they can to get by. There are all kinds of other people. There are people that take it on as a profession and that's, that's their jam and they're into that. That's what they want to create for the world. So we can't really put everybody under the same uh, envelope, into the same envelope then can we? Because some people actually choose to, this is how I feel. I want to express my life and work in the world. Yeah, there are a wide range of people involved in the sex industry. And as you say, some of them are not there by choice. And in in terms of the activism and in terms of the people involved in in looking to decriminalize the law, we make a really clear distinction between 
consensual sex work and sex trafficking. And, and I think it's really important to understand that there are laws around sex trafficking. There are laws around trafficking in humans and that those are not the laws that they're, we're seeking to challenge in, in this case. And realizing that there's a really wide range of people involved and some people are involved. Yes. Consensually. Yes. They choose it, but they choose it in circumstances that they, they don't have a lot of options and, and they may be single working moms who, who need to a way to make money to pay rent. They need a way to feed their kids. They need a way to support themselves. And this is a kind of job that offers a lot of flexibility in terms of time and hours and, and how much you put into it or not. Um, there are lots of people who choose to do sex work to pay their way through university. There are people who are in sex work because they are drug dependent and sometimes precariously housed and they don't have a lot of options. It's really difficult to get a straight zippy job if you don't have an address and you don't have um, a place you can print off a resume or send a resume. And, and so sex work becomes a sort of option for people who don't have a lot of options in some cases. And what we're arguing, what, what the, the Alliance for Sex Work is, is arguing is that the laws themselves aren't making things better for those folks who find themselves in these circumstances where they don't have a lot of choice. In fact, the laws make things worse and more difficult. Um, and so, you know, recognizing that there's this, this really, really wide diversity of people involved helps to sort of frame, frame the discussion. Well, it really does. Thank you for that. And I think that it, what it comes to mind for me is the compounding of things. You could have somebody who is perhaps by choice, chooses to work in the sex industry because they maybe want to be there. That's a thing that they want to do. But because of the illegality of it and the culture around it, the stigma around it, it I can see how it could be a very slippery slope into no longer choosing to be there, meaning that criminals step in, you can call whatever you want, pimps, turf, territory, all of that. And then all of a sudden now they've gone from this is my choice. I want to be here into there's a bunch of oppression and people that are controlling my life. You can see how slippery that slope would be when there is no structure of law to protect that. Yeah. And because it's illegal and because uh, people who are what we would call third parties in the sex industry or who are making money off of other people's sex work, um, because it is criminalized and because they they work outside of the margins of any kind of labor law, for example. So there's nowhere to go if you end up involved with a manager at uh, an escort agency or um, uh, an individual manager who is exploitative. There's no one to complain to. There's yeah. no one to back you up. And so the fact that it's illegal doesn't protect people from being exploited. What it does is makes it much more difficult for them to find their way out of exploitative situations. I hear that when you're in trouble. 911 is often not an option because the consequences of calling 911, it's a lot easier to catch the prostitute than it is easier to catch the person who ran away. And um, the wrong person can end up in jail in the case of an assault or confinement or whatever's going on because there is a stigma plus illegality that comes with asking for help when you're in danger. Yeah, and sex workers historically have a lot of suspicion toward police because prior to 2014, uh, sex work itself, the exchange of sex for money has was not criminalized in Canada prior to 2014. But what was criminalized was communicating for the purposes of, of exchanging sexual services. So 
it was easier for police to uh, harass and pick up and charge sex workers than it was for them to take on clients. And, and, right. and really, it was sex workers who were bearing the brunt of that criminalization. And there was a lot of exploitation and, and harm done even by police. And so there's a lot of a lot of people working in the sex industry who don't even look at police as an option, even though now since 2014, it is legal to sell sex, but illegal to buy it, which puts people in this odd, precarious situation where they might not be not be charged, but their clients might be charged. And, and again, makes it more difficult for them to work. And yet this legacy of distrust means even though they may not be charged, they're not willing to trust those um, institutions of, of policing and, and the courts to really look out for their best interests. My buddy, my choice. I mean, that has been a, uh, in the last two years through pandemic, through the American Roe v. Wade things, all the other things that have been going on around this conversation. Could that be possible that, you know, this whole, you know, autonomy thing really inspires uh, this conversation to be pushed forward again? Because, you know, there's been a lot of unrelated similar conversations about what people are allowed to do with their bodies that that are that have been going on. Absolutely. And I think it's a really important conversation that takes it outside of the question of the, the moralism. So when the original sex work prostitution laws were overturned uh, by the Supreme Court back in 2014, um, the government came back in and, and rather than respect the spirit of the Supreme Court ruling, which said that these laws are problematic and that they uh, violate the Section 7, char- Section 7 Charter rights to life, liberty, and security of the person, they brought in a set of laws that said, we feel like we need to protect sex workers from exploitation and from nefarious you know, pimps, as they would think of them, uh, from people who would exploit. They want to protect them from men who want to buy sex. And, and we'll be clear that, that clients are framed as predominantly men. They're not all, but but yeah. in, in the law, they're framed as men. And so the idea is, you know, you write this law that's, that's ostensibly aimed to protect women from men who want to purchase sex. And, and that in and of itself is a sort, there's a sort of moralism that's really wrapped up in that law that says, you know, and, and they wrote in the preamble to the law that it's important to protect um, human dignity and, and that it's important to, um, that it's, to, fight back against the commodification of of sexuality. And and so the law itself is premised on the idea that women don't have the right to do these things for money. Yeah, that's right. Um, Well, I I guess what I hear there and not to use, because I don't have the same language and and experience and education that you do, but so you protect women from men who want to buy sex. So instead you end up with men who aren't willing to buy it that take it anyway. And that sounds... Uh, wild to me. Okay, so criminology is your background. So let's talk about uh, the criminality of all of these things, right? That's what you do. So when we look at the criminality around it, it seems to me that there it's an invitation for more crime when there is no structure around it. Is that a safe assumption or are we, am I offside with that? No, it's a very good assumption because, so what's criminalized currently? The the purchase of sex is criminalized. Uh, what they would call living on the avails or materially benefiting from someone else's sex work is criminalized. And uh, communicating in public for the purposes of, of selling sex is criminalized. Mm-hmm. And um, advertising is criminalized. And so 
what they've essentially done is they've set up this really odd situation where it's it's legal for sex workers to work to sell sex, but everything else around it is is illegal. And so what happens is, uh, you know, as you imagine, you're trying to make a living, and you have to be careful that the the people that you're seeing as clients are not going to be identified by police, that they're not going to be charged, and so mm-hmm. you're working in in secret really. And you're having to use code coded language to talk about services because you can't speak openly about mm-hmm. the the parameters of your service, what you are consenting to, what's on, on offer and what is not. And, and so setting boundaries around those services becomes very, very difficult. And so sex workers find that they may end up in a situation where they thought that they had negotiated uh, particular boundaries and the client coming in may not understand the coded language that was used they may not respect right. those boundaries and there's again nowhere they're, they're not able to work in spaces where they might have security for example because if you hire a security officer or a security person they're profiting off of sex work which is illegal illegal <laughs> so, right so, so you, you can't even up, protect yourself yeah exactly they've set up a situation to make it actually much more dangerous to work yeah okay well if we're selling sex then that to me says things like porn and only fans would essentially be selling sex. It just probably is happening in a different room on a screen. So, I mean, is that the same thing? I mean, you can see how the gray areas become tangled up like a bowl of spaghetti here very, very quickly because not only is something like OnlyFans still selling sex, but now it's creating a whole new stigma around what this looks like anyway. Um, And that, that just, to me, seems exponentially problematic. Yeah, and the law doesn't really address things like OnlyFans. Like this has not been a subject of of criminalization and targeting to this point. In the same way that the porn, the the legal porn industry hasn't had these same kinds of barriers, and so there's really this sort of distinction made between performing sexuality and pornography and having sex for money. Yeah, and it's a very odd, you know. Which is ironic because in in the case of, uh, you know, a prostitute and a client, one person is performing, right, and putting on a mask and a costume, and the other person is participating, really. I mean, if you really wanted to get, you know, spiritual about it, one person is doing a job and performing and not probably, I'm assuming, not there to have a good time. They're just there to get the job done. And the other person is there to have a good time. So you actually, in the situation of the service, you have two completely different roles that are, that are happening anyway. One uh, is defined as being okay because you're just having a good time, and one is uh, one is not. That's wild to me. Well, ex- yeah, that's true. I mean, and, and there's lots of research that talks about uh, sex workers performing and how they how they view their job as a performance in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, the difference being now that actually, if you're if you're purchasing, you are breaking the law. It is criminalized, and for years, yeah. it, it was very much you know, kind of not paid too much attention to. They, the police really focused on people selling sex and they were in some ways less concerned with clients. Um, and I think it was a sort of, if you want to put a feminist frame on it, there's a sort of normalization of men want to have sex. And so these are just ordinary Joes who want to have sex. And and so it, even though there was a sort of recognition that it was problematic in the law, it wasn't the target. Really, the target were, were the women selling sex because that sort of breaks out of our, our 
cultural expectations about yeah. about women's sexuality and again control of women's bodies right as you pointed out roe v wade and these other situations where where women's behavior is very much controlled well it, it's funny that you say that i wonder what it would be like when if if okay police go into the street and they find a reverse scenario where it's a woman buying sex from a man and a man is providing the gigolo service, if you want to use the lazy language. Who would get charged in that scenario? Who gets frowned upon in the finger wag for being immoral? Um, because I would have a sneaking suspicion that the, the, and I'm only assuming this is just what's happening in my head, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it would be looked at differently. Potentially. And, and I would assume that probably women buying sex don't come. To the attention of police in quite the same way because right. there's there's not an expectation there that your client is a woman and so i think it's a little easier for for women to sort of avoid that kind of scrutiny hmm. um where where uh, uh, you know a woman who's set up an in-call establishment and has men coming and going is likely to raise the suspicion of her neighbors it's likely to to draw attention to that situation in a way that perhaps a man who has women coming and going occasionally isn't necessarily going to raise that same kind of suspicion. So you can feel the stigma kick in though, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and male sex work, sex work, male for women, sex work is less common. It does exist. It's out there. I've spoken to some male sex workers mm-hmm. who, who service women, but um, it is less common. And really by and large, we're talking about an industry that is uh, a male dominated industry in terms of clients, uh, whether they're purchasing from women or from other men. Criminology is your background. Stacey Hannum is the guest. She's with Wilfred Laurier. And you, what, how, what does the criminality change? If we, if we legalize uh, sex as a business and as an industry and it just becomes regulated and legalized, what does that look like? Are there benefits? Is it better off that way versus the way that is currently being done? Yeah. So in 2003, New Zealand passed their Prostitution Reform Act and they decriminalized sex work for, for citizens of New Zealand. There's still some illegal stuff going on with migrants, but but by and large, uh, what's happened in New Zealand has been that the sex workers there feel safer. They have the ability to work together in, collective, in collectives. Um, they have the ability to hire security, to hire a driver, to have other people um, in the establishment where they're working so that they are feeling safer. And if there's an issue, they have people they can go to. They, they can go to the police. No, there's no worries about being charged. Um, they can assert their right to, to safer sex, to use condoms, because it's written right into the law that this is an expectation. So you can actually promote public health and, and you can mandate these sorts of things. And that's controversial with some sex workers. But but I think by and large, you know, the ability to assert boundaries and to say, nope, I have to use condoms. It's the law is is a good thing. And, and sex workers talk about um, feeling more empowered to assert their own rights. So I think that's been a really good change in New Zealand. And it is certainly the model that advocates look to when they look for best practices and, and situations where uh, people are able to work safely. Right. And also be left alone, I guess, too, which is probably a big part of it. So what what, what are we missing? What's left, Stacey, in this conversation about sex work? I mean, is there anything that we're missing here other than the fact that, you know, it's in front of the government? Is it going to happen? Is it just too big of a, of a conversation at this point? It took a long time for marijuana. Well, I mean, 
again, in 2014, the Supreme Court did rule that those laws were unconstitutional. And the new laws, frankly, were really just a rewrite of the old laws. And and we said at the time, those of us who were sort of critical of the situation said, what you've done is basically put you know, old wine and new bottles. It was the same reprodu- reproduction of harms. And we've systematically documented those harms in, in the years we've been doing research. We've documented what's going on. And so I think that there's a very good chance that the laws will be struck down again. Uh, and then it will be left to the government to decide if they're going to create a new framework that will protect sex workers, that will... Uh, decriminalize and, and they are looking for decriminalization not legalization uh, legalization has its own issues and you can look at the legalized brothel model in nevada has some fairly serious flaws um but you know there's a good chance that that this could perhaps happen and maybe now is the moment because of all of this attention to to bodily autonomy as you suggested so fascinating. Um, there's clearly more to dig into here. Uh, so I look forward to chatting with you again and, and getting an update as, as these things go. It's Stacey Hannum with Wilfrid Laurier, professor, uh, criminology and all things wrapped around this. It's a long way to go. And at least the ball's rolling. Yeah. Uh, right. It's going. Yeah. Let's hope for a good outcome at the courts and then we'll have to see what the legislators will do with that. This is the Shift Podcast. More rockets, more drones, more death. Going across the Atlantic into Europe and into Ukraine to speak with Mikhailo Zernikov. Mikhailo is a a former lawyer and judge, and he works as an advocate for Ukraine, for democracy, and creating that freedom and democracy in Ukraine. Not the kind of guy that Russia likes much, but... Uh, Ukrainians uh, have many people like Mikhailo that work incredibly hard to build the future of Ukraine. So you can imagine when we talk about war and invasion in Ukraine, the people who are working so hard to create the future are some of the most impacted by that. Mikhailo, welcome back to the shift. I appreciate you being here. Uh, Shane, thank you. Hi. Uh, Happy to be here. Thank you, sir. Um, and thanks for getting up so early uh, to be around with us uh, on this show. I appreciate that. Always a pleasure. Um, sometimes you don't get much sleep at nighttime with everything going on, so I do appreciate that very, very much. Um, I just wanted to start here, Mikhailo, with uh, maybe let's open things up, and uh, I'm going to give you this uh, blank canvas to start with the question of how are you doing? It's been a, a very difficult couple of weeks with rockets flying overhead. Well, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the fleet is not, um, you know, it's a luxury lately because uh, the, 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 the missiles attack have increased. You've probably heard of it. Uh, you know, this uh, Monday we had some uh, almost 100 missiles flying away. Uh, that Somebody says that's uh, uh, around a um, year's supply of missiles that the Russia has. So uh, what they wanted to do apparently is to destroy our critical infrastructure and freeze us. And uh, uh, because, again, they were heating um, things that are essential for, uh, you know, uh, basically the infrastructure things. But not only they were heating children's children's playgrounds and, uh, you know, residential areas, as they always do. Uh, But, of course, they, they, you know, most of the things are back to normal now. And, uh, uh, of course, they did not uh, achieve their goals. But anyway, that's uh, we still have casualties and that's... uh, 
that, that's a tough uh, thing. And, and some, sometimes at some point there was several air raid alarms um, every night. And of course, yes, it doesn't doesn't help you sleep. Well, I um, there was one video, and I, I don't recall if you shared it or liked it on Twitter. I usually find my stuff by just going through your account. There was a young lady who was walking video uh, video of herself, and the rocket, yeah. you can hear it scream overhead, and then it, the rocket crashes pretty close by, close enough that you can hear the glass you know, go clink, clink, clink when it hits the ground. So you know it wasn't very far away. To see the terror yeah. on her face, though, to listen, I don't know what she said, and I, I hesitate to run that audio on the radio because I, I, I can't translate it easily to make sure that it's, I don't know what she says, right? So I got to be, uh, keep yeah. it appropriate. Um, but the terror on her face and the tone of her voice, um, really brings some new perspective for those of us who are outside the conflict. How do you handle that, Mikhailo? How do you handle that when you hear stories of that from colleagues, friends, coworkers, and then obviously your countrymen that you see online? Um, because it gets real very quick when you can see and hear the glass falling like that. Uh, that's true, yeah. You can, well, just to, from my experience, it wasn't that close, of course. And yeah, I saw the video and it was, uh, of course, it was terrifying. Um, but it was some, I know, 500 meters away, probably. Uh, it's, it's the closest I heard the explosions when, when they hit Kiev about a couple months ago. And uh, I, I can tell you, it's, 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 it's traumatizing. I mean, you, you can clearly hear the explosion nearby as if it were, you know, next door, pretty much. And then your doors are shaken inside your uh, apartment. And, and it's very real. And you understand you can be hit. You know, nobody's safe in, in, uh, in Ukraine. You can be hit any, literally any minute. And uh, today, by the way, it's, it's Defender's Day in Ukraine. It's a big, uh, especially now, it's a big holiday when we uh, recognize and we congratulate everybody who uh, fights uh, to defend Ukraine. And... Uh, we're having uh, back at work. We're having a strategic session to, you know, to kind of to plan accordingly in times of war and all that. And we we now have we see the reports that, that, that go. And the president addressed the nation, saying, you know, uh, you better keep safe today because you know these, uh, you know, the enemy that they have this strange notion that they that do everything on the certain dates, and they of course would. Uh, very likely increase the attacks and and uh, and um, especially the missile attacks today. Um, but anyway, we, you've got to do what you've got to do. So we're we're going to to work and we're continuing on with our life because that's. I think everybody understood by now. It's it's a thing that we have to live with. It's a constant. It's not fear, but it's a constant understanding that you can be hit basically any minute. But it's not a reason to not live your life and to not continue doing what you have to do you know, in order to win and in order to to continue uh, living, basically. So that is why, again, what is crucial, what is very important to um, to increase and, and to help Ukraine uh, protect the skies and to get uh, all the systems that are, you know, anti-aircraft, anti-missile, in order to um, effectively protect ourselves. Mikhailo Zernikov is in Ukraine. Uh, he works inside the legal system in Ukraine. And, um, Mikhailo, what is day to day? I want to ask questions about, you know, like Putin says, 
you know, oh, yeah, well, we can turn the gas back on, all these things, like the political stuff. And I really want to ask you about the bridge in Crimea, but we'll get to that in a second. I wanted to, I, I wanted to just ask, what is the life look like for you on a day? Or, and if you're not comfortable speaking to your life, maybe someone around you, I am curious. You, going to get groceries, picking up some of the basics. Can you stop at your coffee shop on your way into the office to pick up your coffee? I mean, are some of the basics of when you say going back to living a normal life, you have to live your life because you can't live completely in fear? Can you go to the grocery store and buy apples and chicken? I mean, is life that normal? You can, of course, but you have to, uh, A, um, choose the time where it's not, you know, air raid alarm. Otherwise, you're sitting, you know, in the corridor or in the shelter, depending on how um, um, intense the, the shelling or the, the, the attacks, the, the missile attacks are. Uh, B, you have to always kind of strategically choose your places where you go to. If it's like, if, you know, if it's a nice coffee shop in a glass building somewhere in the office center, it's probably not a good um, um place to go because again it, if it's if something explodes nearby then you know all the glass uh is basically falling on your head which is not uh, which is not cool so you yeah you, you kind of choose places that are um that have less um that are safer basically and uh, if you can of course now uh, since the last attacks when you know Kyiv was hit and many other cities in ukraine were hit uh, you also you also think twice, and you better I don't know take coffee in your office where it's you know uh, it's an old building with thick walls, uh, or uh, you know do it back home uh, when you have a lower chance to be hit. Um, so yeah, you, you think about these these things. You still you you, you always have to consider the, the countries at war. You always have, have to consider you can be hit. So you mm-hmm. you, you, be, you basically choose safe places. So. When we spoke before, we had spoken about, you know, preparation for nuclear raincoats, all of those things that people were trying to get. Yeah. Um, is it, uh, can you get those things? Is it massive shortages or is it, you know, hey, by the way, the store has raincoats today, so everyone goes to get raincoats. It has the normal life supplies been able to still flow, infrastructure still happening? Well, you know, there's no shortage, um, uh... When, when the missile attacks um, uh, hit us, you know, massively on Monday, there were lines um, to get gas, but uh, there was no shortage of gas. It's just people were freaking out and basically uh, fueling up. Uh, but uh, other than that, no, um, I don't think that many Ukrainians so far are um, preparing all they like, doing all they can to prepare for the nuclear war. We're, I think we're still, um, you know, it's, it's it's not a given, and hopefully it will not happen. But uh, yeah, you could you could do. There, were, there was no no shortages, luckily. But again, it's it's a thing to consider, and people are, um, you know, pe- people are concerned both with um, the threats of nuclear attack and uh, the winter that might be cold. That's another concern. That you know, we we already know that we have a shortage of uh, you know gas and other. Uh, things basically the whole Europe uh, is in a situation where uh, Russia just uh, cuts supplies or threatens other way or you know d- does what Russia does basically um, and people are concerned with 
you know, where to live if, you know, if we don't have heating or if we don't have electricity uh, during wintertime. And that's, that's uh, I think that now increasingly becomes a bigger concern than the, than the nuclear war. Mikhail Zernikov in Ukraine. Um, let's talk about the Kerch Strait Bridge. Uh, was yeah. there celebration when this bridge, who I do believe technically Ukraine has not claimed responsibility for, but certainly celebrated, uh, this is a bridge from Russia to Crimea uh, and the annexed territory of Ukraine. And that that bridge, well, th- there's a car bridge and a train bridge, and yeah. two pieces of it at the same time, coincidence, I don't think so, uh, blew up and uh, and have collapsed. So it essentially cuts off that lifeline of consumer goods, resources, military, everything. Did you did you dance, jump for joy a little bit? How does that work? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, also it was like it was you know Ukrainian internet was full of memes with uh, you know people being super you know overjoyed and all. It's it, it's both. It's, it has a huge symbolic meaning. You know, it was Putin's kind of uh, uh, pride uh, thing, and then they go like, "Oh, now we connected uh, it to our newly acquired land, whatever." Um, and of course, it has a huge military uh, and otherwise uh, big significance uh, to Russia. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, they, they were uh, massively. Um, using it to transfer goods and, uh, you know, arms and whatnot. So, uh, of course, it was uh, overjoyed to see to see it collapse. Uh, again, I don't know who did it, but uh, apparently it was very effective. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, now we see that, you know, also Ukraine, Ukraine wants to liberate Crimea, and I think it, is, it, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. It's necessary to do it now uh, for, for many, many reasons, and... Uh, uh hopefully uh f- for both military and other reasons generally uh considering the war uh that we are having the russian aggression and and uh, for for the specifically crimean uh campaign uh which hopefully uh, comes next uh that's that's a, that's a very significant thing uh, there's some other reports uh, get your thoughts mikhailo on Russia's moving people from here soon into uh <coughs> pardon me Russia's moving people from here soon to get out Russian people out because Ukraine's advancing getting so close the yep. translation of the quote that I read on the BBC says uh Russian occupied folks civilians I've been urged to save themselves and to get out Yeah that's uh, that's another you know that's another sign uh, of how uh, how bad Russia's campaign is going. And don't take me wrong; it's, we're still outnumbered, both in in uh, you know uh, human resources and uh, arms and ulteriorly uh, airplanes, whatnot. So, so that's why we need more and more um, weapons, heavy weapons, tanks, um, anti-missile, anti-rocket systems, airplanes to 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 finish it as soon as possible because, again, every day of occupation atrocities are happening on the occupied territories. You know, now we're, now we're not only talking about, you know, Bucha or Irpin or uh, Izum or other uh, places. It's, it's, it's uh, basically it's now every, every significant town that, that has, that's been under occupation has, has these uh, awful, awful things happening. So that is why we have to liberate it as soon as possible. But, yes, uh, if Russia is talking already, that, that's, that's the... It's um, basically it's proof how effective 
where Ukrainian army is using um, the the Western um, arms and technologies and and and, uh, and the help we're getting. That even uh, being outnumbered to that extent, we're still um, advancing and we're still basically um, making. Um, yeah, we're we're still from a point of view of the aggressor threatening uh, Kherson, and so now they have to evacuate, and they understand that they will not be able to hold it. Uh, so that that of course also brings joy and 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 hope, because we would like to liberate our um, and Kherson is the biggest city that you know Russia um, is occupying currently uh, of Ukrainian territory. So that of course uh, um, brings a lot of hope, and uh, we really like to see Kherson and other territories liberated as soon as possible. Mikhailo Zernikov, I have an interview that I've uh, recorded this week that we're going to play early next week that I'm going to send to you. It's uh, Our guest Please. is a professor at a military college in Canada. And I'm curious to get your thoughts after you listen to it, and it's possible that maybe we can sort of bring you on after that conversation one day. I realize schedules have been difficult the last little bit, but we're going to want to try, and here's why. He speaks to a generational change inside Russia, how they have been grooming their young children. And in fact, um, this professor, who's Canadian, he works in Canada, he writes books, and he's studied all of this, and he says that he has heard him for himself he has heard mm-hmm. um, school children being taught songs about how they're going to take back Alaska, like uh, children's songs about taking back Alaska. And it goes to speak to yeah. how deeply rooted this notion of, uh, you know, the grooming of what this war looks like with the rest of the world, take back uh, the Alaska, take the Arctic, so on and so forth, grow, 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 and expand, expand, expand what is the call the Soviet Union, I guess. Um, does that, any of that surprise you or is that just the stuff that I'm finally learning and speak to it honestly, please? Is this the stuff that I'm just catching up to now through all these conversations that I'm learning that you've been speaking about all along that this is actually going to be a generational problem in dealing with the, you know, at least the, the brainwashed people of that country? Not surprising at all. Russia has been that all the way. Russia is an empire. Unfortunately, Russia is the last empire that it should have collapsed, you know, during the First World War when, you know, Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed and others. Uh, it should have for sure collapsed after the Second World War when, you know, it was one of the two regimes that started it. You know, the Nazi, we, we are, we, we're so, the, the, the world was so preoccupied with denazification that it completely forgot about, um, you know, the, the Sovietization or decommunization. Of course, because one, one part, because, you know, the Soviet Union was the, um, on, on the winning side, but uh, it was it was uh, nonetheless uh, anti-human regime, and and uh, see what what it continues to do. So Russia, even though in 1991 it you know the Soviet Union disintegrated, the Russia uh, still uh, kept being an empire, and that's what that's what they do. They're essentially uh, anti-human um, regime. They're they're non-democratic. They're autocratic. They're anti-Western. They're threatening. They, they, the only um, grandeur uh, they know is taking territory from others. It's not, you know, economic prosperity. Their, it's, you know, their economy is bad. It's not human rights. It's nothing. It's not technology. They're, they're not good in anything other than threatening other nations and taking land from others. And that's what they do. And that's how they educate their people. And that's how they educate their next generation. That is why there is no other way for the free for the free world to be safe from their um, 
attacks and their genocide and their um, basically inhuman behavior other than um, manage the carefully managed the disintegration of Russia into uh, probably several democratic states that would be non-genocidal in nature and finally uh, turn to be, uh, you know, democratic and progressive and, and, uh, and non-threatening to the rest of the world. This, this is what Russia is. So it's not, Shane, not surprising at all. Well, and what vacuum gets created if Putin goes away and who there's probably someone ready to fill his boots. So we're going to have to save that for another day. Uh, I do look forward to sharing you uh, that conversation with you and the rest of this community here on The Shift. Sean Maloney will join us next week officially with that audio and um, for the Royal Military College of Canada. Mikhail, uh, Mikhailo Zernikov is in Ukraine. And I appreciate you, sir. Please stay safe. And I look forward to chatting again soon. I appreciate you, Shane. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.